Thursday, February 27th, we'll be showing films by Kamran Shirdev. Shirdev will be here himself uh, to answer and engage with the uh, audience. And uh, in March, we have a very uh, auspicious beginning to a new prize we're giving called the Beta Prize for Young Persian Artists. Uh, this year's winner is a uh, remarkable young Iranian uh, pianist uh, who has won many, many awards. And we have succeeded in uh, reserving the Bing Concert Hall for her performance. So the fact that it will be a concert Bing is itself a remarkable uh, event for this young lady, but she's also truly a young lady of enormous uh, talent. Uh, and the rest of the program, the, the next major uh, event, other than uh, these lectures, uh, is a memorial on February 25th that we're going to have uh, that is in memory of Professor Amina Banani. And we are launching at that event uh, what is called the Stanford Festival of the Arts. Uh, it is supported with the generous donations from the Taslimi Foundation, which have created the Banani Memorial Fund, and with uh, equal generous donations from Bita Darya Bari and Hamid and Krishna Mughatan. It's a three-year uh, uh, pledge. Uh, hopefully, it will become uh, permanent, and we're going to have many more uh, poetry readings, plays, films, uh, conferences, uh, and uh, if you are on our list, you will be getting uh, uh, the announcements. And on that day, we have a very interesting array of scholars and uh, poets and family members talking about Amin Banani, who's really a pioneer in Iranian studies, uh, started the Iranian studies program at UCLA, created the first degree program in Iranian studies anywhere in America, uh, and uh, was a Stanford graduate and very uh, closely associated with Stanford. He donated his books to Stanford. He has taught, uh, uh, he's given lectures for us. He was about to start giving a seminar that he got sick and we unfortunately couldn't uh, bring him here. Uh, his wife will be here. Uh, Professor Kazim Zadeh from Yale will be here talking about their days at Stanford many, 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 many years ago, more than 50 years ago, I think almost 60 years ago, uh, uh, one, uh, one of his students uh, uh, will be here, Bahiyye Nakhjabani, a remarkable artist, uh, was also a relative of Banani, will be here talking about Banani and his aesthetics. Uh, Banani was a remarkable man of many aesthetic sensibilities, from opera to uh, poetry. Uh, and then, um, uh, we will have a, a small talk and the recital of some poetry by Bahram Abizai that will bring the program to an end. It is a 
very, very interesting collection of uh, uh, scholars and artists and students of Banani and family. Uh, it will be in the Simex Auditorium uh, at 6.30. I just want to make sure uh, I have all the details. February 25, at 6.30 at Simex Auditorium. It gives me special uh, pleasure and privilege to uh, introduce to you tonight's speaker, Professor Hecklin. Uh, my sense has always been that if Indonesia and Morocco were fortunate in having an anthropologist like Clifford Geertz to study them for 50 years, Iran has been fortunate in having Mary Hecklin study it for not that long, for, but almost that long. Uh, the, uh, the rigor of her scholarship, the tenacity uh, of her pursuit, uh, her sense of fairness, uh, her attempt to go back and back and back and back to the same place uh, is just simply remarkable. The book that we're celebrating tonight is a result of truly a lifetime of dedication to Ali Abad. And she has shown once and for all that the famous Persian phrase that says Ali Abad am Shahrinist is not true. Ali Abad is a great place. It is worthy of a great scholar's lifetime dedication. As an Iranian, I am truly honored and humbled that we have a scholar of her fairness, her stature, and her tenacity uh, be interested in Iran and pursue it with such sense of fairness, impartiality, and astute observation. Uh, the editor-in-chief of Stanford University Press is here. I uh, very kindly welcome her. She was very instrumental in bringing the book uh, to this press. And under her um, leadership, Stanford University Press has become much, much more active in publishing first-rate works on Iran, on the Middle East, on the gender issue. So as members of uh, the Iranian-American community, we also owe her a special debt of gratitude. Thank you for coming. And we also have, of course, Professor Beeman, uh, who is a visiting scholar here. And he, too, has been studying uh, Iran for many, many, many years. I won't mention the name. He's wearing the cane. Uh, he might hit me if I tell you how long he's been. Uh, thank you, Professor Hickman. Well, you embarrass me very much by bringing up my name in the same sentence with Clifford Geertz's uh, name, so I'm, I'm embarrassed. Thank you so much for your kindness. But I will admit that I'm tenacious. I'm a very stubborn Norwegian, and I have tried so hard to go back to Iran and been very determined to go back to Iran. But you can thank uh, Persian culture, the fascinating and warm and lively uh, Persian culture for, for attracting me and making me want to go back um, to Iran. I always am struggling. How can I get a visa and go back to Ali Abad? I want very much to go. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. And of course, I've known people in Ali Abad for 35 years now. Now, I know the grandchildren of little kids when I first went there. They've grown up, got married, had children, get, gotten Damod or Arus and become grandparents. Um, so 
these people are very dear to me. And I want to point out to this picture, this was the Darvaze, it was the gateway to the village of, of Aliabad uh, 35 years ago. Now, of course, it's all flat and it looks like an urban area. But before, this was a revolutionary period, uh, you can see Rustahaye, and then after that, Rustahoye Imam Khomeini. They were a very revolutionary village. Um, and in the middle of the archway is my little daughter, Kerime, Karima, who was a one-year-old when we went to Iran, and she was a two and a half when I left Iran, and she only knew Persian, very good Persian. It was her mother tongue. And my friends used to ask me, Mama and Kerime, you know, I, she had so much better Persian than I did, with a Shirazi accent, in fact. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, little by little, she forgot it. The last word that she had in her memory was Bastani. <laughs> Ice cream. Of course, she remembered that the most. Well, first of all, I would like to thank Professor Abbas Milani and the Hamid and Christina Mogadam program in Iranian studies and the Bita Daryabari endowment in Persian letters for inviting me and sponsoring my talk. It is an honor to be here with you to talk about my book Days of Revolution and my study of political culture and process in an Iranian village near Shiraz which I call Aliabad and I also want to thank Kate Wall, the editor of Stanford University Press, and Ryan also, uh, for all of the work that they've done with this book. I'm so happy to have it published. And I also want to thank Bill Beeman and my friend Jane Curry for being here, and for all of the rest of you for being here as well. I'm a cultural anthropologist. I teach just down the road at Santa Clara University. And I wrote the book, uh, based on anthropological fieldwork in Aliabad. Uh we anthropologists live among the people whose culture we are attempting to understand. Our main method is participant observation. We attempt as much as possible to participate in activities and social life while also observing and recording. I myself consider anthropological research to be a joint project, a collaborative effort um, I feel that my work would not have been possible without the generous help and friendship and also astute political analysis of the people in Aliabad who helped me. I even today am surprised by their very able political analysis. And I, I think in general, Iranians are very astute at analyzing politics. 
When we go and live, for example, as in a community of Ali Abad, which 35 years ago was about 3,000 people, we attempt to form relationships and friendships, uh, and we learn from people. We have to do library research as well, but the main way we gather information is through talking to people, observing people, asking questions of people, discussing with people, and it's a most enjoyable and engaging process. Basically, little by little, your life becomes the life with these people, and other lives begin to fade away, and this becomes your own community, the people that you're really interested. Every day you wake up in the morning wondering what's happened that day, what are you going to find out, and very anxious to meet with your friends and talk with your friends again. And because I relied on my friends in Aliabad to do this research, and they were my partners in research, I must also express my great gratitude for the people in Aliabad who worked with me on this research project. If you look at the Stanford University Press blog site, you will find a blog which I wrote and also photos of Aliabad 35 years ago, uh, at which I put on the um, blog in honor of the people of Aliabad who helped me. I've lived with Aliabad people for two years. The first time I went, I was in Iran for 18 months uh, from June 1978 until December 1979. So I was placed in an extraordinarily fortunate position for a political anthropologist. I was there before the revolution, during the revolution, and up to, what was it, nine, 10 months after the revolution. So you can just imagine, I wrote my dissertation on the Iranian revolution based on being there watching, talking, following all of the fascinating and distressing things going on. It was actually the most gripping 18 months of my whole life. Now, since then, of course, uh, Iranians, uh, most Iranians and myself have gone through a great deal of despair and grief and even depression for years after the revolution because of our disappointment. But even then, I remember these 18 months as the most gripping period of my life. This book falls into the category of political anthropologists. Political anthropologists are people who have their feet in two areas, uh, political science and also anthropology. Political anthropologists are different from political scientists in that we generally emphasize people um, everyday people, people at the ground level, at the grassroots people, and we're interested in understanding 
how national level politics and even international politics influence people on the ground. We're also interested in trying to understand how people on the ground influence not just local level politics, but national level politics and even international politics. It was all these grassroots people who actually brought about the Iranian Revolution, and yet all of them were also very influenced by the resulting national level politics. And they were also influenced by international politics. During the Mossadegh period, during land reform, the people living in the village where I worked were very much influenced by international politics, basically US, um, uh, US policy. Um, so basically it's a study in political anthropology based on field research and being there and watching there. Now many people when they think about the Iranian revolution they assume that Shia Islam was the motivating factor that pulled people into participation in the revolution. But through oral history, watching what was going on, looking at the stages in which happened, things happened, discussing, uh, watching events uh, that, that changed people's mind, I came to the conclusion, conclusion that absolutely not. Shia Islam, for most of the people in Aliabat, was not the motivating, motivating factor. And in fact, it was their own local level political culture which had developed during the landlord period when they were landlords and sharecroppers, uh, which influenced and provided a model for the people from which, which to, with which to analyze the revolution and to make decisions regarding whether they should get involved, when they should get, and get involved, and what to expect out of the revolution. Uh, I, I was kind of surprised when I came to this conclusion because it seemed not to be quite, you know, what what many other people uh, understood it as being. And I don't think I would have seen this if I hadn't asked about oral uh, oral uh, history, gone into oral history, and watched things and talked to people for 18 months as the revolutionary process evolved. Um, the local level political culture was based on competition and conflict between factions or groups that were based on mainly kinship ties. These the villagers called Taife. You've pro the Persians have probably all heard this um, word before. And Taife Keshi refers to competition and conflict between kinship-based political factions. People had had learned about this from early childhood by listening to their parents tell stories, by watching conflicts, by being socialized and enculturated into local level politics and local level culture. Um, I call this uh, this uh, model, the Taife Keshi, or the competition and conflict between kinship-based uh, groups, I call it a processual paradigm. 
a processual paradigm gives the concept of stages to go through in, in a political process. For example, we have the election process and, and we understand whether it's correct or not that the election process goes through a number of different stages. And we have this paradigm to look at political process. Well, it's what we have in our heads may not always coincide with what, what actually happens. But a processual paradigm of conflict and competition between kinship-based um, groups is like a philosophical and theoretical framework which is used to understand reality, in this case political reality, and to decide what stance and what actions one should take and to have expectations about what to expect. It's like a cultural model and it was based on decades and I don't know how long, of conflict during the landlord period. The landlord of this village was Ravon. The Ravons were very large and powerful um, landlords in the whole Shiraz area. The Ravons were very powerful in Iran. Now the way the Ravons had originally built up their power was through international trade. And people in Aliabad even gained more money and more power through international trade. You know that in the south of Iran, international trade was very important um, and it became important in politics. So during the landlord period, the landlord, the Qavams, lived in Shiraz and they were not that powerful usually that they could control things in the village. They were not powerful enough to do that and the central government was not powerful to, enough to do that. So they used a system of kind of indirect rule. They let the kinship groups fight it out between themselves and then use the victors to become their main representatives in the village. This was very wise because then the strongest group in the village, the strongest man in the village would be the representative of the landlord. So they would build up their power, they would bring in their kinship ties, their kin would bring in their kin and they would develop a very strong political force. Now, the cat chodas, or the headmen, headmen mean, cat uh, choda means headmen, were very powerful in this village. People call them the shahs of the area. They were very, very strong. They could control what went on. They could decide who would get beaten. Uh, they could decide who got access to agricultural land. And this, of course, is how people made their living. So you needed to form a connection with the people who were powerful in the village. You had to be on good terms with them. You couldn't stay out of politics. And in fact, New Year's, Noru's, became the time that you showed your allegiance. You had to go to the home of the headmen, the cat chodas, and show that you were his uh, supporter. So you were forced into being connected with the cat choda. That is, well, the cat choda could maintain his power, 
But eventually, some people would begin to feel, this guy is too brutal. He doesn't help us enough. Uh, and someone else might gain more uh, money because of his involvement in international trade, going down to Bushir, going to the, uh, being involved in international trade, having caravans, uh, shops, and little by little then this new contender would want to build up his power and his political strength and he would want to become a cat khoda. A, a, a headman in the village. So he would try to gather his relatives, he'd give things and, and support people, he'd give dinners, he'd pull people together, and gradually uh, he would become a contender for the Kat Khoda. Um, so I began to uh, do oral interviewing with people, and I heard a number of stories about conflicts in the past, about how um, kinship groups had fought with each other over control over the land and over the position of Kat Khoda or headman. And I'll, I'll tell you one, I'll give you one of the stories um, which I had gathered about uh, this kind of conflict, uh, uh, which brought about eventually a change in the person who was headman in the village. Uh, this, this young man told me the story which had been passed down to him by his father. A long time ago before land reform, we had a fight with the Saidis over a little piece of land. It was when Mullah Jamshid Ajami was Kat Khoda. The Saidis were relatives of Mullah Jamshid because Mullah Jamshid's daughter was the wife of Ali Panah Saidi, son of Haj the Saidis thought that because the Kat Khoda was on their side, they could do whatever they wanted. It was very useful to be a member of the kinship group of the headman or Kat Khoda. One day, Am Amu Aziz was taking his cow out the village gate to give it water. Haj Khodadad Saidi's son hit Aziz and started a fight. Amu Aziz left his cow there and went home to tell everybody. My father, Haydar, head of our Taifei, the kinship based political faction, told everybody to get ready for a fight. Everyone went out. The fight was near Sayyid. Uh, Rahim shop. We had a big Taifei. Mullah Jamshid had a large group too, and they helped the Saidis. A stone hit the back of Amu Ramazun's head. He fell down. My father, Haydar, shouted, bring him into the courtyard. Everyone was screaming that he'd been killed, and then let's go and get revenge. You had to go and get revenge. If you didn't, the other side would think you were weak, and they would just walk all over you all the more. You were forced into giving, uh, getting revenge. The fighting went on. My father gave Haj Khodadad a severe blow on the head and he fell over. The fight ended to our advantage. Our Taifei got the plot of land for two reasons. One, because we were stronger, and two, because the right was on our side. Isn't it interesting how the right is always on the side of the people who are stronger? We had put in the earlier claim. Um, and then uh, the story goes on, and there were several more conflicts 
and eventually the uh, Taifei or the kinship group of the young man telling the story whose father was the head of the Taifei, they got their man to become Kat Hoda and the other Kat Hoda lost his position. So from a number of these stories, I began to understand uh, the process of um, how this happened, the political process of fighting between two groups and then eventually the landlord would put the victor in as his representative. Very handy for the landlord to have the strongest kinship group in the village, his representatives, to extract more uh, uh, more crop from the from the uh, sharecroppers. So I'll tell you what I began to see about the stages in the political process of uh, competing between kinship groups. Political process seemed to be carried out in eight stages. These stages also seem to represent Aliabad people's expectations of political process and its result. One, people work to develop useful ties. Uh, pol political effort is always continuing, whether or not it is a period of outright confrontation. People about think about what type of ties are advisable, with whom, and at what level. Political Making social ties is very politically important. People attempt to create, strengthen, curtail, or eliminate ties according to their perceived usefulness. They live politically. You had to live politically. Number two. A second stage, a contender gathers resource. A potential leader gathers wealth and status and begins to build up a following. This was usually from involvement in international trade. He mobilizes his relatives. He makes alliances through marriage. You can see from the story I told you how important relationships between women are. He tries to pull in supporters using a variety of strategies and connections. Third stage, clashes occur between the contender and the incumbent. A series of clashes takes place between the upcoming political leader and his group and the person in office and his group. And everybody follows the success of the two parties. Everybody has to watch very carefully to look at the balance of power because they may have to change sides. If you don't change sides and you get stuck on the side of the loser, you are going to be bad off. You've got to be on the side of the winner. Fourth, the incumbent performs an outrageous act. The person in office does something that people say, that is so terrible, we can't stand it any longer. Um, we, we have to get rid of him. This is the last straw. This is the signal for an all-out attack by the upcoming group and their leader. And it's a rationalization for many people to shift to the other side. This person is so terrible, how can I be connected with him? I have to go to the other side. The fifth stage, 
This new opposition, outraged, grows in numbers and resolve. The opposing leader and the group are outraged to the extent that they are willing to do anything to get rid of this awful person and his supporters. They are no longer concerned about their own safety, they say. Uh, and a lot of people shift over to the other side because they're so outraged with this terrible thing that uh, the leader, the office uh, person in office, or one of his supporters have done. And a large number of people simultaneously shift over to the other side. And the sixth stage, a final confrontation demonstrates the victory of the contender. A battle or confrontation occurs that establishes the now overwhelming power and support for the contender, the new incumbent, the new person in office. His predecessor is kicked out of the position and kicked out of the area. He loses control over land. His home is attacked. Uh, aggression may occur. and. Uh, and he and his followers are, are just kicked out of the area. They lose everything. Um, the old um, person from his office may flee the area. Very often they flood, fled the area along with their closer, uh, closest supporters. His property is taken and his skillfully constructed political faction is shattered. His followers are prevented from taking united political action. In fact, they are just emasculated. They can't do anything. If they raise their voices, they are going to be attacked. Everyone is forced to go to the side of the new person in power. And the new people in power use ritual and public space to demonstrate their new political control and the powerlessness of the former powerful um, um, headman and his uh, following. The seventh stage, the village is reunited under the new leader. Everyone rushes to join the side of the newly victorious leader. Uh, everyone attempts to connect themselves with the new order by mobilizing diverse ties through their wives, through their daughters-in-law, through their sisters. And the village community comes together again under the new regime. You can't be a dissenter. Dissenters are quieted. And eventually, even the closest supporter of the old officer has to shut up and be quiet if he wants to go on living in the area. And in fact, they'll, they'll enter into uh, rituals of, of uh, acquiescence. Um, um, and then uh, the eighth stage, again, people live politically, whether or not they're aware of it. People are active politically in everyday life in large formal settings and in small ways. And women are actually very important in maintaining social ties, although I don't really have time to talk about it. So everyone is watching power and trying to connect themselves uh, with important people. So this is what I found is the processual paradigm of these uh, groups of uh, kin-based uh, factions competing in conflict with each other. This is the Taifei Keshi, cultural model for political process. This is what I gathered from uh, oral history, from people talking about it. Um, I could, I could see it in so many different ways uh, in behavior. And very interestingly, uh, 
when people began, when the, uh, the political situation in Iran began to be kind of out of control and the central government was no longer so much in control, this paradigm came to the fore again. This kind of political process, of course, can only go on when the government is weak and can't control things directly. And during the time of the revolution, it came to the fore and people used this political processual paradigm to channel their uh, behavior in the revolution and to help them understand what was going on in the revolution and to make decisions about uh, the revolution. So um, this had developed because of the landlord um, sharecropper situation and headmen and those who wanted to be uh, headmen and their groups fought over uh, agricultural land, control of agricultural land, and over the position of head man. The, the headmen were very powerful. They were called the shahs of the area and the region. And people were forced to be aligned with the headman and his group, or they would be helpless to protect themselves. That was the only source of protection that you would have for other people you know, against other people. Until too many people felt that the headman was too brutal and not helping people them enough, and then they might shift their support, but they would have to do it all together. Because if you were caught on the wrong side, you would, we would be in, in bad uh, trouble. So it was a system of shifting elites. People could have hope if things got too bad and the leader was too brutal and didn't help them enough, that they could make things a little better by shifting their support to a new person who hopefully would be more receptive, more responsible, and a better leader. People felt they could do something. Uh, uh, the landlord and the central government didn't have so much power to control directly, and they basically allowed the groups to fight it out for themselves. Now, in the late 50s and 60s, as the Iranian government began to get more powerful, people couldn't do this anymore. They couldn't shift their support to another uh, person who hopefully would be more powerful. The central government became powerful enough and had gendarmes, police, army, and they kept their representative in power. And as time went on, more and more people in the village got angry at the central government's um, headmen. And more and more people were no longer, they had to look like they supported him because that's how you got anything out of the situation. But they didn't support them. They were really angry. Um, uh, they, they became really angry, but there wasn't anything they could do about it as they had in the past by shifting their support to another headman. There were three situations that happened in the village that taught people 
you cannot get rid of these headmen. The government is supporting them. Forget it. You are not strong enough to do that. You can get the biggest kinship group together in the village and nothing, you won't be able to do anything. One was during the Mossadegh period when an, uh, quite a number of people in the village became so, uh, supporters um, of the uh, National Front and uh, Mossadegh. And then when he was overthrown, uh, you know, with the involvement of the CIA, um, the supporters in the village were really slammed down. Um, they were exiled, they were beaten, and people really suffered. A lot of people suffered because of this. A second situation in the village was a peasant strike. The peasants got together and said, we don't get enough share of the crop. We're going to go on strike. And for one year, they did not um, uh, cultivate their abi, their irrigated land. They did cultivate their dry land, which was just irrigated with rain, but they didn't cultivate their irrigated land. At the end of a year, the landlord uh, was holding, holding firm. He was holding firm, and they gave up. In the meantime, a lot of people had gone to work in the city, and a lot of people didn't take up their right to agriculture anymore. Um, so that didn't help them either. They were very disappointed. The most violent and most difficult uh, situation that occurred that really taught people to just behave themselves was land reform. Um, as you know, Qavams were related through marriage with the Shah and um, the landlord of, of uh, Ali Abad, Khanum uh, Khorshid Kola, Avami uh, knew about land reform before it happened. She knew it was going to happen, so she quietly sold half of the village to her buddies in the village, her representatives in the village. And then when landlord came along, when land reform came along, all the peasants were expecting, oh, we're going to get all of the land that we've been farming. We've been going to get all of it that we've been farming. And then they found out, no, they were only going to get half of it. Well, even though all of the land they'd been farming wouldn't have been enough to support a family. And so many uh, peasants had left agriculture anyway because of the strike. Uh, and they were furious and they just rose up and there was a battle for like two years. Um, the peasants said, you're cheating us, um, all of this is supposed to go to us, and there was a great big fight. And um, actually, uh, uh, the Qavams had to leave, they went to, uh, they went and got support, and eventually they came back with a lot of gendarmes and soldiers and lures, and they beat everybody down, and you know, people were beaten and, and subdued. So from these three situations, people in the village learned you cannot do anything. Just be quiet. There's nothing you can do. And then uh, from land reform uh, in 1962 until um, the time of the revolutionary conflict, the uh, government's representative stayed in office and they, they realized they couldn't do too much about it. If they tried to, the gendarmes would, would take care of them. Um, so they were very 
unhappy in this village. Now, I don't mean to say that in, in all over Iran, land reform wasn't, wasn't good. It was very different from village to village. But in this village, it happened to have a very divisive and, and troubled uh, situation. So then uh, the, the, um, the revolutionary conflict started. And most people were very afraid. They just thought, let's just stay out of any trouble. And uh, the uh, government representative in the village tried to get people together to support the government. And people just stayed on the sidelines because they just didn't want to get into trouble. The majority of people in the village were uh, out of the out of the battle and then little by little people started to get involved and then there was an outrageous situation uh, someone uh, was knifed was stabbed uh, one of the pro-revolutionary young men was stabbed by a, a pro-shah uh, policeman from the village and this was just outrageous because the young man who was stabbed I call him Cedrus uh, 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 he was his his father had been a martyr for the village, had gone to get water from the neighboring village and, and uh, had died in a fight for water. And he was a very popular young man. So people became very angry. They said, this is what the Shah supporters are like. And many people all of a sudden shifted over to the other side because they were so furious about this violence. The young man um, lost consciousness. He was taken to the hospital. He was in a surgery for hours. And so many people went to visit him in the hospital, uh, just as people had gone to uh, support someone who had been injured. And then I could see that people began to uh, apply this political culture, the processual paradigm of Taifei Keshi. And the process, the stages that people went through followed the processual paradigm of the local level politics. The majority of the village, until Sirus uh, Hurosh had been uh, stabbed, were not involved. They weren't motivated by all the Shia Muslim rhetoric and the Shia Muslim everything. They decided on the basis of violence to a member of a very strong kinship group who is basically related to the whole village and very popular. They decided to shift to the side of the revolution. And only after they made up their mind to shift did they start using the Islamic rhetoric? Just like, you know, the professors at Shiraz University started to be captivated by the Shia Muslim framework because that was the only framework for dissidents and for, for resistance which was available. So then they began to go through um, the stages of revolution, just um, paralleling the stage of Taifei uh, Keshi in the village. Uh, and I'll, I'll uh, read a part of that. Uh, okay. 
The people of Aliabad predicted and interpreted actions related to the revolutionary conflict according to the Taifei Keshi processual paradigm that had long been a part of political life in their village. The process of involvement, getting involved when, when there was a, a brutal act, an outrageous act, um, reasons for changing sides. Many people use the rationalization of this um, the stabbing to change sides uh, and they watch to see is everybody else changing sides? I want to be in a crowd of people who's changing sides. I don't want to go all by myself. They wanted to have the safety in numbers to change sides. The means by which people transferred allegiance, they would use an in-law relationship. Uh, the way they did it was similar to how people shifted sides in uh, village history. The sudden shift of public opinion and the new support after outrageous acts. And then people began to destroy the property of people on the other side. The person um, uh, who had stabbed Kurosh was attacked and his uncle, who was a supporter of him, his shop was taken down, destroyed, everything taken. Um, uh, people said even chadors from Mecca were torn up and kids stole the candy. The fleeing of foes from the village, the people who had been Shah supporters were forced to flee. They went into Shiraz, they hid out, they knew they were in real danger. So just as in the past, when um, the leader and his supporters would have to flee, they'd lose their property, they'd lose everything, this also happened during the process of the revolution. And in fact, um, the peasants took over the property, uh, took over the property of the person who had become the largest landlord in the village um, took over his property. So they lost property just as people during earlier conflicts had lost a property. So all these stages and all these actions during the revolutionary process in Aliabad bore a remarkable resemblance to the local political culture and system of, of Taifei Keshi. And I go through the eight stages again, but you've, you've heard about them, so you don't want to hear uh, about them again. So I began to realize that the preparation that villagers had to understand the revolution was only their local level political culture. So naturally, what you've done in the past, the processes and political culture that you've been exposed to in the past, is what you're going to use. And most of the people in the village expected that, you know, Ayatollah um, Khomeini would be like another Shah, but he would be better and nicer, at least for a while. And people compared him to a Shah. Uh, one peasant said, you know, I've seen five Shahs come and go, and they met Khomeini. So they, most of the people in the village didn't see, you know, him as you know, particularly 
different kind of figure from any other political leader, from any other Shah, just as in the village in the past. They'd seen uh, headmen come and headmen go, and there'd be a honeymoon period at first. You'd, you'd expect good things. You'd expect them to pay attention to you, to be nicer, to provide more things for you. Uh, but you know, then, then things uh, would change again. So in the meantime, after um, uh, after uh, the revolution. Uh, and in the years after this, the years until I was able to go back, about 27 years, uh, in the village things changed very much. One of the greatest changes is that people sold their land. After land reform, land became owned by individuals and people sold their land because they could get money and land got more and more expensive and there was just daily at the end inflation of land people got rich in the village of you know four or five thousand people more than 90 uh, real estate offices were opened they also sold opium uh, but uh, and opium has become a terrible terrible problem in the village you know most most men well that's what people say are are using opium um, but land became a commodity and people got very rich. They also took out loans uh, and did many things and uh, people uh, lost all their land. Uh, eventually 90-95% of all Aliabad land is in the hand of outsiders. And this is very distressing because once you sell land, it's gone. It's gone and you don't have it anymore. So they'd sell it, and some people in the village were so upset about this. They said, I know somebody who before owned that garden, and now he's the gardener, he's the bogboon for somebody else. He just has this low job. So it's a very distressful uh, situation. And also, uh, people have become very materialist. Uh, you know, the oil money is being used to import from China, and everybody has to have more and better than everybody else. So there's, you got to be better than the neighbors. Uh, you have to have a bigger wedding. Uh, it has to be more expensive. You have to get clothes, new clothes all the time. So I'm, I'm personally very upset by many of the things that I, I see in the village. But the, 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 the base of this Taifei Keshi system was that kin had to get together to protect their access to agricultural land so that they could be sharecroppers on agricultural land. They had to protect themselves, their families, their properties, their access to agricultural land. So the groups of kin had to stick together. They had to fight against each other, against other groups to keep their own um, sources of an income. Well. Once land had been sold and it belonged to individuals, people started going to court with members of their family over inheritance. And guess what? Women started to insist on their half share too. And so sisters were going to court against their brothers 
all of the members and families were fighting against each other before the kin had stuck together to, as a group, protect their access to land. Now, members of a family fight and fight over land. People said before, land held us together. Now, land pushes us apart. And many people in the village have not talked to each other for a long time because they've been in court. Brothers are fighting against brothers. Once a man dies and the inheritance is supposed to come, you can expect that almost all families are going to fight. And sometimes people blame it on the wives. Uh, uh, the mothers may get aligned with some, the boys, often with the boys, uh, or it, it's, it's a terrible situation. The first time I went to, back to Aliabad, um, you know, this wonderful family that I just loved so much, they all got together in the old family home where only the mother was living. Now older women and live by themselves because the kids have left them. They're living on their own, both in the cities and in the villages. 50% of older widows in the village, the last time I was there, or even in 2005, lived by themselves, which never happened before. But in any case, all the kids and grandchildren came back to the family home. And I said, oh, this is so wonderful to be together with you all. And they said, this is the first time we've been together for seven years. Uh, because of, of the fights. So then what has happened to Taifei? What's happened to these kinship groups um, in the 21st century? Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll read you something uh, from the book that, that uh, tells what's happened to, um, to kinship groups uh, in the 25th century. Uh, one young, one well, middle-aged man. First time I met him, he was 22. <laughs> now he's 22 plus 35. Um, the Taifei has been abandoned. The kinship group has been abandoned. Before, incomes were very low. Agriculture was important to people, so people were forced to help each other, and the kinship group took sh um, shape. If you wanted to plant a large piece of land, you couldn't do it by yourself. You got help from brothers, fathers, brothers, sons of fathers brothers to do this. So the kinship group became strong. If others wanted to come and get this land, you had to fight with them. Back then, people who put their hearts and hands into it made progress. Now, only a few people are in agriculture. So people depend on themselves. They think only about themselves and their families. Now relatives don't get together. They don't support each other. If only they would join in and clean out the water channel together. The orchards would do very well, but they don't. Now there are only a few people my age whose hearts mourn for agriculture. When we were young, we had to work. I had to do harvesting from the time I was three or four years old. Might be an exaggeration. Uh, in the heat of summer, I knew the value of land, but the young people don't know its value because they haven't worked it. They haven't put any effort into it. 
Uh, now, in every family, the young go after cars, satellite dishes, houses, and the only way to get them is to sell land. And the kids have become so demanding and so bossy. It's now the world of the young people. They say, Dad, so-and-so's got a new model car. Get me one. And fights come up. The sons especially are very demanding. My heart burns when I wonder why things like this uh, ha have happened. I feel bad, not for myself, but for the country. I send the children to study, but what do those who study get? The young people who don't study will buy and sell land and get rich. My children tell me, why do you go to the Office uh, of Education? Come and sell land. Uh, Taifei culture is leaving and city culture is taking over. And the older people mourn the old ways in Aliabad when people would, you know, I think they also idealize it to some extent. And I'm with the older people. I really miss those old days when there was so much socializing. Now everybody's got a nuclear home and only their nuclear family lives in the home. And people say, people go into their home and they close the door and a brother may not see a brother for a year um, so they're rather disappointed uh, the older people and I said well what do the young people think and they they say the young don't think at all about the old days they think about today and clothes and land and houses and being better than the neighbors and spending more money for weddings um, so that's um, the end of my talk, um, I'd like to show you some photos from 35 years ago in, in Aliabad, if you have patience uh, to look at them. Uh, here's the gate, now it's all gone of course, uh, nothing there anymore. Um, people basically uh, lived in a courtyard uh, made out of mud brick with houses, with rooms for each of the families. They were extended families living in a courtyard. Um, this woman was lucky enough to have um, tile. Women washed, of course there were no clothes washers or dish washers or anything. Uh, people who had uh, piped water into their courtyard were lucky and all the women would go out into the courtyard, the women from the various nuclear families, to wash their clothes and um, uh, wash uh, their dishes uh, with the courtyard um, uh, uh, faucet. Uh, women, of course, bake their own bread. Now nobody does that anymore. Uh, women, nobody cooks for weddings anymore. Before they used to cook all of their own food. Now uh, they outsource it. They go to bogs and clubs for weddings and you know, women really have it pretty easy and they're starting to be a very big problem with obesity because uh, there are so many cars, they don't walk, they used to work so hard, now they don't. Um, uh, Aliabad was apparently the first village to have pipe gas. Uh, Bill <laughs> knows more about that. Uh, and the women just loved it because instead of working over charcoal or wood or getting their eyes all, you know, they had gas, so they would bake bread like every week or so and, you know, pile up huge uh, piles of, of bread uh, and then uh, before you wrap it up in, um, in plastic and then when they wanted to eat, take it out, 
uh, sprinkle water on it and it get nice and soft. And people use bread to eat. Um, Um, they also made their own things like abgure. They are making abgure. They're making uh, sour uh, grape juice that's used like lemon juice in the winter. So they pick grapes before they're ripe, smash them, take the you know juice out of them, and they loved it when I brought glass bottles. You know they would use that and put uh, put paper at the top uh, and use them in the winter. The guys were the ones who could do the stomping because that was men's work of course. Uh, so the men did the stomping. They'd get you know these clean boots that they'd had and, and stomp. It's sort of ev evocative of making wine but of course I wouldn't I didn't say that. <laughs> um, and the whole family would get together. They had a large stone container that would pass around from family to family. One of the times that I went they were also Make, went back again 2005 or 2006 or 2004 um, a family was making um, the sour grape juice and I said well can I try it to stomp on it so I got in and I you know stomped for about one minute it's really hard work and got out again and then the young wife um, said oh let me try it too and her husband said no <laughs> because this was a masculine thing to do the foreign Anthropologists can get get away with doing things that, you know, women from the village uh, can't do. This woman is smashing up dried balls of yogurt, uh, and that's you know, women did everything, preserved all this food, made jams, made sharbat. Um, you know, they they made everything. They made their pickles. Um, they did everything themselves. You didn't buy things. And uh, this woman is smashing up um, dried balls of yogurt to reconstitute it into kind of a paste which is added to soups or stews and in fact when I go back to Aliabad that's one of the gifts that people send with me is I, I'm still working on the, uh, balls of dried yogurt that I got in 2008 they keep you know they're very and they add a lot of salt so here's a grandmother uh, with her granddaughter uh, here's a, a tribal woman, um, and then a, a, a carpet shop was opened um, uh, in the village where some of the young girls from less well-off families, and this also was a tribal woman. Um, the area had been very important for making handmade shoes, which the Qashqai tribespeople bought as they came through. And when I, when I went there in um, June 1978, there were still about four men in the village who were sewing um, uh, leather bottoms to uh, hand crochet tops. And women were still crocheting these tops. And they could keep the money from, from doing that. But by the time I left, there wasn't one man in the village who was doing that. Of course, um, you know, factory-made shoes uh, were taking over. This is something what, what a courtyard would look like, an open courtyard with lots of rooms on the bottom for animals and then rooms on the upper uh, floor for, um, for people. Usually a family would have one room. Uh, each nuclear family would have one room. There's my blonde daughter uh, wearing a red sweater. The young ladies didn't do crocheting that was you know they were 
too modern for that, and they did knitting. Here's my daughter dressed in wedding wedding clothes. Now she's uh, 37 years old, and she's a she's a labor and delivery nurse, and she has two little two girls herself. Um, and here's some uh, <coughs> families in Yasuj. Um, as you can see, women did their own cooking. Only if it was a large wedding, a man would be hired to cook the great, huge, uh, dig, um, um, what? Dig, dig, dig. Great big kettles, pots of, of rice, uh, but women did everything else. And you can see this is before the wedding. They haven't put their wedding clothes on. They're sauteing egg, eggplant. And this young lady is dressed up for the for the wedding, and this is the courtyard. Here's another young lady dressed up for the wedding, and here's the what you can tell was after the revolution. Before the revolution, they didn't wear chadors at all, uh, although they normally did. Otherwise, they wore chadors when they go uh, went outside of the house. They but for dancing at weddings, it was done out in the open, and women didn't wear chadors. But then after they were were forced to, and actually there was a. a um, Mullah from Qom sent to the village and he said no music and no dancing at weddings and so he prevented it for a few weddings and then people just got tired of that and so they started having music and dancing at weddings again and he got mad and left. <laughs> <laughs> And here's, here's a wedding. We went about five hours away to get a, a girl from another village for this um, young man. And here, here she is. Um, green, of course, is the color of wedding dress that people used to wear. And she came dressed in a green dress. And her modern relatives in, in, in Aliabad said, no, 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 no. You have to wear a white dress. And so they got her out of her uh, green dress and into a, into a white dress. And here's my best friend uh, from the village. And I was very fortunate to be able to meet her in Turkey for six weeks um, this last summer. I have more slides, but I think maybe you're getting tired. <laughs> you want to see some more slides? Really? Okay, which do you, which, um, well, um, let's see. Um, I have um, slides around of the village environs in, in 78 or 79. I also have some slides from 2003. Which would you prefer? Violence. What? Violence. Violence? Yeah, yeah, you said. Oh, violence? Oh, no. I don't have any outright slides of violence, but, um, well, uh, yeah, actually, um, yeah, I don't have that. What? Can we also ask questions? Uh, sure. Do you want to ask questions or see slides first? 2003. What? 2003. What? 2003. 2003? Okay. Uh, let's see.
Okay, this, now this is, remember what you saw, the gateway before? This is now the gateway. Well, this is 2003, it's probably changed since then. Um, and the shops from previous years, you know, in previous years, now they had refrigerated shops. And the old village has basically been deserted and it's becoming an archeological site. Because you know, mud brick has to be maintained. You have to, you know, put new layers of, of mud and straw on it, and it's it's falling apart now. People have urban-like homes in the new <coughs> site across the street. <laughs> it made me feel so bad to to see this. I really miss the old days. Um, Now this house has been repaired. It is inside of the village. Um, and now you can see that it's like Tehran used to be. Now, of course, there are high rises, but it used to have, you know, these these uh, couches, these streets with walls on both sides. And you'd go inside and there would be a, a courtyard. Uh, we're gonna go off on a picnic. There was so, there's been so much building going on. Now, of course, since 2008, there's been a terrible economic, uh, you know, the situation economically is, is really, really bad. And I'm very, very uh, worried and, and um, about the situation. But in 2003, things were booming. And this was the nicest house in Ali Abad. Someone who had become a member of the New Village Council uh, built this house. And that's what people said, oh, Oh yeah, you become a member of the village council, you gather money, supposedly that's for asphalting the roads, and all of a sudden you build this gorgeous new house. Uh, so people continued to be, you know, they were very upset about politics. Um, <laughs> oh, and, but, um, and I found that I've, I've, I've seen that from the ground up, people are questioning hierarchy in all areas of life, including the religious area. I mean, people say, I don't accept the Ayatollahs anymore. I don't accept the Ayatollahs anymore. At every area of life, family, economic, now there's no landlord, of course. Um, all of those relationships of deference and power that I saw so clearly um, in 1978, 1979 are under attack. Daughters tell their fathers off. I couldn't believe it. Girls are so outspoken. So it's basically from the ground up that people are questioning authority. Uh, so there have been tremendous changes in every area of life, including in the family, including gender. Women and girls are so outspoken and you know they're really controlling so much more. One of my friends said to me, you know, back then it was the it was patriarchy. Now it's offspring archy, children archy. They're the ones that run everything. They tell us what to do. 
And one of my friends said, well, other women said this too, back, in, back when we were young, it was the rule of the mother-in-law. When we were brides, it was the rule of the mother-in-law. Now that we've become mothers-in-law, it's the rule of the brides. <laughs> and they are so bossy. And they say, I won't live in the house of my mother-in-law for one night. The house has got to be perfect, a new house, so much furnishings, and people sell their land to set up their kids into their lives. They have everything the day they're married. They have everything they will ever need, it seems like. And I thought, wow, they've got it so good. You know, I had to little by little get, you know, it's, so um, uh, here's, here's a family. And you can see by the informal, uh, you know, informal um, postures uh, that family relations have become uh, less formal and deferential. 35 years ago, you know, a, a girl just sat on her haunches and didn't move in front of the adults. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you all know how formal it used to be between father and son and father and children, and now all of that's changed. Um, uh, people, at least in 2008, people were still mainly living on the on the floor. You know, they would spread their uh, tablecloths, they would spread their beds on the floor. Uh, a few people in the village had bedrooms and dining rooms, and you know, everyone had new modern kitchens. But generally, they would still not use their furniture, and they would still sit on the floor. I don't know. Probably by now, things have changed. I don't know. Now, here's a father and son, and you can see how informal the relationship is, and a mother and a son, something that really shocked me when I first went back. I mean, it used to be that husbands and wives didn't pay any attention to each other in public. They just wouldn't speak with each other, and of course at weddings they'd be in separate courtyards and separate rooms. In order to send messages, they might send a child, um, and people said, you know, and I never saw, I never saw a husband putting his hand on his wife's shoulder 35 years ago. You just didn't do that. It was very disrespectful, disrespectful to the parents, you know, and, and in fact there was a great deal of control by the mother-in-law of the bride. I mean, I've heard really interesting stories about um, that. But now things have loosened up, and I was so surprised to see the relationships um, between uh, married couples and also non-married couples. When you get engaged or you go through the marriage contract, then you can, or, uh, you can see, you can travel, you can go places. And, and I believe that you know the sexual relationship starts before the actual wedding party once you've done that done you know the contract um, so you see engaged couples and the signing of the contract ceremony is kind of kept secret because people don't want others to know that 
you know, what's happened. Um, but uh, I was really shocked, you know, to, to see that um, a, 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 an engaged girl would come and stay two weeks at her, at the home of her um, uh, fiance's parents, for example, or he'd go and stay there and they'd go traveling together. And I was really shocked. <laughs> now, unfortunately, in the village, the sexual revolution has hit Ali Abad and lots of um, men have uh, girlfriends outside of marriage and people even told me about married women who are having affairs. So all of the change that, that have taken place in Tehran, if you've read Pardis Mahdavi's book, Passionate Uprisings, which is also a Stanford University Press publication, you'll be just shocked at what's going on in Tehran. And I thought, oh, that'll never happen. And Aliabad, well, guess what? You know, uh, world culture has hit Aliabad. And, you know, you can't keep influences out no matter how much you try. It's absolutely amazing. I'm kind of I'm kind of conservative myself and I believe if people are married they should kind of, you know, stick to their marriage partner, but not in Aliabad apparently. So it's it's really um, shocking. Not in Tehran. What? Not in Tehran. What? Not in Tehran, according to Pakistan Oh oh well yeah. Oh it's very um, it's very yeah, and now that's happened in Aliabad. I'm, I'm just shocked to pieces, to tell the truth. Um, and here's uh, 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 twins. These little girls were so naughty. Uh, they were so naughty. I couldn't believe it. Little girls didn't used to act like that. Every time I tried to take a picture, they'd dive into the picture. They'd play with my computer. Um, and, you know, little girls and big girls and women have become empowered. Uh, and, of course, that's not exactly what the <coughs> regime wants of them, but they have nevertheless become empowered. Here's a young fellow, of course, this was 2003, and now he's, I saw a picture of him, and I thought he was the father because he changed so much. And here's the wife, um, and here's the young man who was 22 back 35 years ago, and he chose his own wife. What a scandal that was. But he had employment in Shiraz, so he could do it for seven years because of what he did and the inheritance fight. The family didn't get together. They didn't talk with each other, um, he and his brothers, although now they're doing that. And he's, here are his twin little girls. Uh, and the family. Um, I used to show this picture to my, my students uh, after we'd read um, stories from, by Erica Friedel, Women in Day Co, and they realized how conservative it was. Even a two or three year old little girl, after having her bath, would wrap herself up so not even her toe shows, and little girls were taught to sit with their legs together and be very modest from a very early age. So we read all these stories and then I'd show the students these this picture and I'd see do you see anything that surprises you do you think there have been any changes and they'd say oh the little girl's underwear is sitting it's showing and no one told her to put your legs together <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> so um, now people don't wear traditional things at weddings anymore this was just a kind of a little bit of a 
you know, they held out. Now at weddings, you should see what women dress in, and girls, you won't recognize them. The, their dresses are to here and to here, basically. Um, and their hair is done, you know, in purple and blue, and, and they've got so much makeup on, you don't recognize them. Uh, this was back in 2003, uh, but now things have moved a lot um, moved a lot, uh, moved a lot along. Um, you see the short sleeves. I never saw a, a girl or a woman in short sleeves 35 years ago, and they're dancing, very Western style dancing, Western style music. The kids get out out there and take over. Uh, it's a young people's world. It's a young people's world. And the old people sit on the side, looking very out of it, and missing the weddings from the old days. Uh, well, the young people are just going to it, uh, wearing jeans to a wedding. Uh, and this was 2003. This is still Ali Abad? This is still Ali Abad. This is all from Ali Abad. Yeah, this is all from Ali Abad. And see the old, old people? Very, very out of it. Very foreigners in their own village. Outsiders in their own village. And now this was actually still in a home, but now no one would, would ever have a wedding in their home. Shame, shame, shame. Um, they've got to compete. And you see, I'm the only one <laughs> behaving myself and wearing a scarf. And, you know, they're supposed to, it's, it's the law that men and women have to have separate uh, places for a wedding. But no, you know, the men come into the women's part and the men, women go into the men's part and the women are dressed in, well now, practically nothing. Um, and, you know, it's great, we have a great time. I mean, governments say one thing, people do something else not always what the government tells them to do. So here's, you know, the wedding. Uh, and men were, see now here's uh, uh, the, the sisters dancing with her a brother and the brothers in the midst of all these girls with no scarves on their heads. Well, there's one with a scarf on her head. I myself loved to sort of resist. I would leave my scarf untied or I'd accidentally let it slip off. And I, it's kind of fun to, you know, practice uh, resistance. Here's an engagement party. And my, one of my dearest, dearest friends who unfortunately now is no longer with us and visiting the kindergarten, government kindergarten, so the women had to behave themselves and wear you know, all the veils and everything. So you see the grandmother over on the left with her scarf and her chador and her, her bold daughter-in-law on the right. No scarf, no nothing. I was interviewing an elderly lady and I don't know what, I don't remember what the joke was. And here's a lady I was so active 35 years ago. She's of course already died as well. One thing about, that's really awful about doing long-term research is that people die and I just hate it and I miss them so badly. Um, I know now when I go, uh, I'll go to the grave of the woman who's on my left, and I know I'll just spend a long time there crying. 
Uh, here's my dear friend. Her name is Rahmet, which is very good name for her, merciful. She was so kind and so good. And here's the redone mosque in a Hosseiniyeh that was built in honor of a martyr. There were about 33 martyrs from the war um, in this village. Somebody said to me, this was back in 2003, someone said to me, if you want to see just how much support people have for the government, go to noon prayers and just see how many people are there. So I went to <laughs> this village, which was now 7,000 people. <laughs> and that's how many people were, were there doing their noon prayers. And that's how many women who were there doing their noon prayers. And this is in the basement. This is my dear friend on the left and her daughter-in-law. Now, of course, people wear the briefest, tightest, shortest uh, tunics that they possibly can. There's constant resistance, constant resistance. This is Shah Chirag in, in Shiraz, which is very central um, shrine. And here's me dressed in a chador to go to the... Here's some um, posters of uh, Imam Ho. Hossein's martyrdom. This is my best friend's son-in-law. Unfortunately, he had a Monteau shop, a shop selling tunics. Unfortunately, because of the economic situation, he's lost his shop, he's without work, and so it's a very difficult economic system, uh, a very difficult uh, economic situation, uh, and I'm very, very concerned Okay, that's the end of that. Uh, we have time for some questions, Our, but there are books outside, and she has promised to sign them, I think. So we can get to the books once a uh, uh, few questions. Thank you. Yeah, you, you, if you could talk a little bit loud, I have a little bit of a hearing yeah, I was problem. I was wondering uh, you did, uh, about the education system. They must have schools in that village or colleges nearby. Are the, uh, the women encouraged to go to high school? Or Because uh, I read back a few years ago that they were in uh, Iran. And, and, different from some of the Arabian countries. Yeah, well, like like in the United States, um, the majority of, of university students are women. It's it's actually more, I think, in Iran. So women have get, been getting very feisty. There's a lot of influence from outside of the country. You know, people are constantly watching movies, uh, interacting with their uh, friends and relatives from outside. Uh, Los Angeles, of course, is a huge influence. The television stations, people have got to have a satellite. So, you know, there's so many influence coming from outside, and change is coming. And it's from kind of the bottom up, uh, resisting, resisting hierarchy. And yeah, in that village at that time, there wasn't any high school. Well, 35 years ago, it was just 3,000 people. And um, some young boy, some boys would go to high school in Shiraz. And just a few girls had started going to high school. Now they've got uh, high schools in the village. And there are so many universities that are being built in, in many uh, um, smaller cities and uh, and girls from the village um, generally now are expected to have a high school degree uh, before they get married. Before, well, 
they were illiterate or maybe um, at the time I was there, if they were in fifth grade, it, they could only go to fifth grade and then generally they couldn't go on after that. So, you know, um, but I mean, partly it's, it's because boys, men, find other ways of making more money and so they're not really interested so much as girls are in education. Girls don't have much else to do and uh, it's a way to get out of the house, it's a way to get some status, they don't have many other ways to make status for themselves. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of education uh, for females. I don't know you know, how good the education is, and, and it seems that, um, you know, things maybe aren't, aren't uh, you know, all, also the education is not all that uh, good, although there is a lot of memorization, and so when you have students coming here, uh, they find it's kind of easy um, to, you know, get into their classes here are kind of easy for them. Um, of course, there are so many Iranians in this country because they were the largest foreign student group in the in the 70s, and uh, now there's so many Iranians um, in the area. So, well, this to be like all the government, all the U.S. propaganda about how repressive and uh, well, it is repressive. and everything that the country is, it doesn't look that way for really pictures. Well, it is, it is repressive, but people are... Well, it's not as repressive as it's sold to us here in the United States. Well, maybe not. Um, it's it's uh, because people are just not accepting. Uh, the repression. I mean, women are just pushing, pushing, pushing. I mean, another book is called Lipstick Jihad, uh, and it's women fighting with makeup. You tell me I can't wear makeup, then I'll wear makeup. And that's, you know, how they resist. They are constantly resisting. But I mean, you don't see pictures of this piece like you have in the, the United States press. When the press shows any kind of images of Iran, it's just. Uh, Women in black shadors. Yeah, uh, well, women they would get away with. The United States propaganda is definitely not showing. Yeah, well, they get a, people do things. They don't do what the government says. They don't do what the government says. Are there any other questions? Yeah. So I wanted to know during the time of the revolution, there must have been young people who went to the cities and were involved in in the student groups during the oh, yeah. actual revolution. What effect did they have in terms of bringing information back to the village or mobilizing the village? And and I'm shocked because you never talked about um, religious figures. Well, um, in this book, I'm, I'm focusing on political culture, on, just on political culture. In the next book, I will be talking about religion and religion religious rituals with the caveat that for the majority of people in the village it was their own political culture and once they decided because of violence by a government supporter against a very popular young man who was totally innocent and he just actually it was his brother-in-law and he got, was getting revenge for a family issue and trying to cover it up with oh I'm supporting the Shah's regime that people were so furious that people turn to religion. But the, in the next book, I will deal with the uh, issues of, of religion and, and ritual. And yeah, people did go to the city 
and uh, villages further away, you know, didn't get involved in the revolution. And, um, and actually, a while after the revolution, you know, all these people who were students said, boy, those old peasants, they really knew. We should have listened to them. They said, just another Shah coming. And, um, but, uh, yeah, they were definitely influenced. Uh, and the students, um, because the boys were uh, some going to high school and, and going into the city, and they would go into the city and join um, marches. That they would they marched much more in the city, uh, and it took a much longer time to start marching in the village than uh, than in the city. So I was going with my daughter and marching in the city, and uh, so people would go into the city and march. Yes. Uh, you mentioned how land reform broke down the traditional system of land ownership, and people sold off and stuff. How much of this can be generalized throughout the country? Uh, well, of course, land reform. You know, I'm not a not a student of land reform, um, um, so you know I can't tell you a great deal. But land reform differed. The effects differed from area to area, and even in the villages that I went to, um, some were doing well, uh, some weren't doing well under land reform. Um, so it. it it can't really be generalized. I suspect maybe that in other villages owned by the Gavams, you know, similar things might have happened. But what land reform did is they bro broke down the hierarchy between, and it broke down the village uh, political system. It broke the relationship between the headmen and the, the sharecroppers. So basically what was happening is these relationships of hierarchy and power that kept people in control were breaking down. They were going to the city. They were working in the city. They didn't have to depend on the headmen of the village for their livelihood. He didn't even know what they were doing in the city. So it broke down um, um, hierarchical, vertical uh, power relationships so that people, and I, I think that really had a big effect on the revolution. Uh, it, uh, I, I think that this could be, this can be kind of generalized, that power centers in various areas became uh, broken down. And actually the Shah, of course, was trying to uh, get rid of, of powerful figures. Um, but it, it kind of freed people up uh, to, be, to be individual political agents. Uh, they got jobs in the city, and at that time, you know, jobs were much more easy um, to get, and a lot of people were making, you know, you could get jobs. So uh, your dependency, these very um, severe hierarchical relationships of dependency were broken um, through land reform and through um, cutting back on the power of other uh, power centers. That's, that's what I, I think. Um, let's see, I, I don't know, yeah. Uh -huh. Could you talk a little loud, please? Sure, sure. So in 1978, and you look at, at the time that you were there, and of course there is people who are always, there are some people who are dissatisfied. But you look at the sources of dissatisfaction in 1978, and compare that 30 years later, 2008, you talk to people, and people are, there, is, there, are, there are people who have issues. How are they different, are they similar? 
Well, I'm, I'm not a political scientist, so, and I, my study is through this microcosm, but what I've, I've found is that uh, people resent religion being forced, uh, they resent religion being used as a political weapon, and they say that, in fact, I was talking to a young lady just recently, Harima uh, uh, uh and um, she said, you know, there's no personal boundaries anymore. Harima shaksiat, shaksiati. There's no personal boundaries. You know, people can come into your house, people go upstairs, they take your, um, your um, satellite, there's no personal boundaries. And, you know, the political control is much more pervasive and goes into so many different areas of life. And then, of course, the statistics, you know, the executions, um, you know, the statistics. So people are very unhappy, very unhappy. But you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful. <laughs> Um, it's, it's uh, you know, dangerous, it's dangerous. This is why you have to use a pseudonym, I have to cover up, um, you know, I have to use different names, I don't tell anyone the name of the village. Um, it's very, it's dangerous, it's dangerous. Um, the last time I was there, uh, the first time I was there, people were so furious, they just sort of poured everything out. And then the second time, I think, Second and third time, I think it was the time of Khatami. So, you know, people talked a little bit. The last time I went, no one talked about politics, except one young man. And he, uh, he said, you know, if they knew I was saying this to you, <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult situation. Did anyone else have another question? Yeah. Did you witness any elections in Alabama? Um, just the election? No, I haven't. Only the one for um, for uh, the Islamic Republic, uh, but I haven't I haven't been there for another election. No. Any other questions? Thank you. <laughs> 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 the time of uh, the revolutions with 